Amen. Thanks, Ryan. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to pick up at verse 26. And the title of my sermon this morning is Through Fear to Courage and Reward. And I'm thankful for Julia and her life and just uh, really living this text this morning. This text is going to show us that there's two things that can cause us fear. But it's impossible to fear them at the same time. And if you fear the one, it will lead you down a path of complete destruction. But if you fear the other, it will lead you into a place of peace that surpasses understanding. In fact, when rightly placed, our fear will take us to courage and even on to reward. Verse 26. For we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the reading of God's word. To this point, Hebrews has been driving the home the idea that Jesus is better. That we have a sympathetic and great high priest who has actually put all other high priests out of a job. Because he has made the perfect sacrifice when he himself went to the cross on our behalf. There is now no need for any other sacrifice. There's no need for penance that all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ stand before a holy God and are declared justified. What an amazing thing, this grace and this offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. And so now Hebrews moves and it it, it starts to cast our gaze to not just receiving grace, but now how do we become a people who actually move on and live grace? How do we live out of this? And our text today is going to show us that we will be a people who live full of courage and of faith. But the 
text has a great tone of urgency, a great tone of warning. The last week as Al preached, he said, don't, don't forget to gather together as God's people because the day is drawing near. Even more as the day approaches, that's how important it is. And now the author goes on and he is warning us that there is an urgency to how we live life. Now I know it has been a long time since Jesus came and we wait with this longing, especially as the world continues to move into just what seems more an increasing chaos. We long for Jesus to return. And I don't know when that'll be. I'm not gonna be one of those preachers that stands up and says, well, if you do the math here and we can figure it out. But here's one thing I do know. That the church in America is at a crossroads. That as social pressure mounts, it just feels like we're hitting this fever pitch in our nation. It is time for the church to decide whom will you fear? Will you fear God or will you fear man? And Hebrews is gonna call us to fear God. And it tells us that when it comes to God, you should be afraid. Very, very afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, Hebrews gives us two motivations for how to live life. And the one is what we've looked at week after week. And we have just reveled in the grace of God. We have reveled in his mercy and his compassion. But Hebrews also says, listen, there is another motivation for living the right way. And that is it, that if you don't, you will experience the wrath and judgment of God upon you. And Hebrews has been dripping this all along the way and then brings us to this point where it brings it in force today. But back in Hebrews chapter two, it said that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Chapter three, verse 11 and 12 said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In chapter six, verses four through six, said it is impossible to restore those who have been a part of the community of God, who have heard and received grace, but then reject and fall away to restore them again to a place of repentance. And so my question, church, is are we appropriately motivated by judgment? Because the Bible says it should motivate you. It should motivate you for your own personal salvation. It should motivate you to pursue holiness. And it should motivate you for evangelism of the nations. Because as we heard this morning, there are many people that have not yet heard the good news that Jesus Christ saves, and they will face judgment. And today's text in verse 26 says that if we go on deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins, just fearful expectation of judgment. 
that will come in fury and in fire. Jesus is that knowledge of truth. He is the one who became the sacrifice for us. So if you reject him, there are no more sacrifices. There is no more blood. All the blood that was needed was shed at the cross. And can I just encourage us? Can, can we please stop with this sediment that says, I don't really like an Old Testament God. It's kind of angry, not really my style. I, Jesus, he seems better, he's nicer. I like New Testament God, especially the Holy Spirit. He's the one that brings the warm fuzzies. Love that guy. Church, come on. Jesus, God, the Spirit is one God. And they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. There isn't a dichotomy between them. In fact, if you want to know the truth, it's Jesus who speaks and warns about hell more than anyone else. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48, he says, hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, a worm is what comes to a rotting corpse. And it eats and it lingers, but the, this worm doesn't die because the corpse is never done away with because eternity is a long time. And fire is hot. And make no mistake, it's Jesus in Revelation 19 that comes riding on a horse, bringing judgment. To the point that it says, the imagery is that the blood is all the way up to the bridle of the horse. It is horrific. I know, I just know that it's like, man, this guy is so extra. I think I saw a vein pop out of his head when he was reading those verses. I mean, come on, everybody knows the Bible is super hyperbolic and metaphor. Can I just speak to that objection with a quote from Tim Keller? He says, to say that scriptural image of hellfire is not wholly literal is of no comfort whatsoever. The reality will be far worse than the image. What then are the fire and darkness symbols for? They are vivid ways to describe what happens when we lose the presence of God. Darkness refers to isolation and fire to the disintegration of being separated from God, away from the favor and face of God. We literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. So many modern authors just want to place the emphasis on hell is just what's hard. And if you choose sin and you reject God, you will experience hell now. But it's really a metaphor. And I just want to say, church, it is all of that, but it is also a destination, a perpetual place 
where you will endlessly fall apart from God. So why am I laboring this? Why am I on about this? And one is because I just want us to be biblical as a church. I want us to keep preaching the full counsel of God and not just recreate Christianity and whatever our image is for today, whatever tickles our ears and makes us feel okay. Hebrews warns us. And I want us to get grace. See, this text doesn't stand in opposition to all the beautiful texts that came before it of Jesus being our great and sympathetic high priest. Don't you see it? We only appropriately see grace when we understand the judgment and the wrath that we were saved from. Oh, isn't grace beautiful? When I understand that what I deserved was the worm and what I got was the goodness and love of God. Hebrews wants to warn us. Because verse 28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. If you are sitting in here this morning, you are those who have received. You've heard the good news of Jesus. You have the word of God. And so don't reject it. There's so many people sitting all over Orange County this morning in church just as you are. But they don't truly know the love of God. They bought into a a cultural Christianity. Grandma and grandpa or mom and dad got saved in the Jesus people movement. And they've grown up and they have the value and they went through the motions, but it has never moved from head to heart that brings transformation. And so Hebrews warns us, don't be a person who receives truth, comes into the people of God and ultimately still rejects it. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot, the Son of God? So let's slow down a minute and just look at these statements one at a time. Remember, the context here is someone who hardens their heart and continues on deliberately and perpetually in sin. The person who does that, it says they trample underfoot the Son of God. And on this Memorial Day weekend, what that brings to my mind is imagery. If you want to trample on something, we often think about the flag. If you want to stand against America, the first thing you do is rip the flag down and throw it on the ground and trample it. It is desecration. It is to come against. But how much worse would it be to take a person and throw them on the ground and trample them? Or worse, a child or an infant or maybe even an unborn infant. There's a very public story where these dynamics are playing out right now. The fear of God and the fear of man. Up in San Francisco, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione has notified U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And he has informed her that she is not welcome to receive Holy Communion anymore in her home archdiocese. See, the issue here is that Nancy Pelosi has 
repeatedly over many years of her service to our nation said that I am a devout Catholic. And as you know, she's very pro for abortion rights, and so the archbishop has said, I can't stand by it anymore. You cannot continue to claim Christ. You cannot continue to claim Catholic church and doctrine and then stand directly in opposition to it. And so he has written a letter to her saying, you are no longer welcome to receive communion. And I'm sure even as I bring this illustration that I step into it and there's all kinds of sensitivities and oh wait, he's talking politics. Listen church, I just wanna plead with you that there's this current problem where we are redefining love as non-judgmentalism. That the only thing is truly loving is that if you won't tell anybody that they're wrong. And I wanna just suggest to you that this bishop is actually doing the most loving thing that he can. He is actually doing the work of a pastor. And he is saying, no, you can't believe and act that way. Please turn and repent. And he's had conversations with her. It wasn't just out of nowhere that he wrote a public letter. But he said, you can't stand against God and claim him at the same time. If you do, you're trampling Jesus underfoot. And please don't let this grow pride or self-righteousness in your heart. The second phrase is profane the blood of the covenant. And this should make us think about the the communion supper that we will take here in a short while. And I just want to say, if we are those who condemn Pelosi and then come and take communion and then go home and continue in whatever sin of our choice is, that we are profaning the blood of the covenant. And can I just say, church, that I just... I hear what this bishop has done and it just brings me to my knees and I just think, oh God, do I have that kind of courage? I'm actually so desperate to have people's approval. I I don't wanna be canceled. And so I work so hard to not have those things happen. Will I actually stand with Jesus when it matters? Do I have the courage or will I fear man? Will I fear God? See, Corinthians says that when we come to communion, if we come in the wrong way, we drink judgment on ourselves. So dearly beloved, can I suggest that when we come to communion each week that you should have a couple responses happening in you. And the first one is tremble. Don't come to the Lord's Supper casually or going through the motions. If you drink that juice that represents Jesus' blood shed for you and then you go home and you sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, If you continue on in an affair, if you wake up and go to work the next day and you continue to embezzle money and live for yourself. Parents, 
Are you claiming Christ but then failing to teach your kids? Students, are you claiming Jesus but then cheating your way through college? Profane the blood of the covenant if we don't come with trembling and broken heart. And it says we will outrage the spirit of grace. Church, can you think of anything worse than to receive the incredible love of Jesus and then turn and reject his spirit? So the point of the text is, is not actually to get you to be all fearful of and to live lives in fear. Kevin had a word this morning and, and he saw a tattoo and it was like a sacred heart, you know, with the crown of thorns. You've probably seen it. Is it a shocker to anybody that Kevin gets words and tattoos? <laughs> but he saw it instead of a crown of thorns that gives life. He saw it bound up in chains. And I think what God wants to do this morning is not to bound you up in fear. He wants to break fear off of you. He says, you will never have to fear again if you first fear me. And if you will bow the knee to me, I will give you my spirit. And you will walk in life enlightened by grace with no fear of man. When it says vengeance is mine, the Lord will judge his people. It's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. But if you went to the text, which the readers of this passage, they would have known this. They knew what verse 36 says. I, the Lord, will vindicate my people. I will have compassion upon them when they are powerless. It's a church, would you fear God and move on to a place this morning being enlightened by his grace? Verse 32 says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened. See, what the New Testament writers do over and over again, anytime there's a challenge, anytime they're calling you to actually take steps forward into holiness, they say, when you're discouraged or when you're beat down or where you're feeling fearful, they say, would you look back and look to Jesus and remember grace? Remember that moment when salvation flooded into your heart, the joy, the excitement, the vim and vigor for life. They say, would you recall that? Look again to what Jesus did and that is where you will find courage. 
That is where you will find the enlightenment to move on and to live this life. And so he says, recall those days. Remember grace and it will give you courage. And Hebrews' definition of courage is faith-filled confidence. It makes us into a people that are willing to do what we would not otherwise have done. And so with the rest of my time, I want us to just highlight seven ways that grace gives us courage that we see in this text. The first one is that it gives us courage to endure suffering. And I think this is the case is because we're not scared of lacking comfort. And I think this is one in Orange County that we need to be reminded of, right? This is a land of incredible comfort. I mean, my dishwasher broke down this week. It's the worst. And my wife's a really good cook, but she uses all kinds of pots and pans and junk. It's like the kitchen looks like a tornado, and I'm like, I gotta clean this? That's suffering for the gospel. Yeah, just sit in there and not complain. We have a friend of a friend who, um, I recently heard the story, is, is he's like doing all this uh, training with special ops. So that he's like a doctor or something, but now he's trained to be a bad man. And so he like goes into like these different situations to rescue kids and stuff out of sex trafficking and, and cool stuff like that. And my wife, we're listening to the story like, that's amazing. And she looks at me and she's like, you should do that. That's awesome. And I'm like, oh, you're so sweet. That's so great. You actually think that I'm that guy, that I'm Jason Bourne. I'm like, no, I'm the guy who goes through the drive-thru at In-N-Out and gets a double-double and a milkshake and goes put my feet up and watches Jason Bourne. <laughs> but when we get grace, it will actually make us a courageous people. It'll make us endure and go through suffering. That's why, I, and she hates this, but I can't help it because it preaches so well. Julia stands up here as a single gal and she says, man, I have chronic illness and things that I struggle with. It was so hard for me to be in Japan. I had to come home, but I wanna go back. See, I, wa I wanna endure suffering because people need the gospel. See, grace moves you into a place of courage. It moves you into a place of being selfless. It gives you courage to share Christ because you won't fear public shame. You'll experience reproach and affliction and you'll say, it doesn't matter, I will speak the name of Jesus. See, church, don't, don't buy into the lie that you can avoid being canceled. You can't. This culture, one day or another, if you stand for Jesus, you are going to be canceled. So come to terms with it. But come to the one who had every right, who should have canceled you, and instead went to the cross for you. And let that love motivate you to become a loving person. I can't talk about this without grieving and celebrating the life of my father-in-law. Michelle's dad went home to be with Jesus this week. And I got to see him a month ago. We took a trip to South Africa so we could say goodbye. And my last, like, real meaningful conversation with him was incredible. 
because it was so Leon. Six foot five, big man, rugby playing, athletic, driven businessmen. And then he met Jesus, and it changed everything. He became a man who left the partying and the wealth and whatever, and he said, I will live for Christ alone. He was in awe of grace. And anyone who knew him knew it because he couldn't help but talk about it. And so even as he's staring death in the face, he again shares his testimony. He says, Christ was worth it. All of it. It's all good. It all makes sense in Jesus. And I hear stories of this week as he's on his deathbed in the hospital and he's trying to convert the nurses. He's praying with my sister-in-law, with my mother-in-law. He's got dementia. He's not right of mind, but he's still had this right. He's saying, God, give me courage. Give us an opportunity to share Christ. That's a stinking legacy, man. Man, I want to live my life that way. I want to honor him and what he stood for, but I want to honor Jesus more. And it'll give you courage to stand with others. You know, sometimes courage is hard to come by. I just want to say, church, can we become a people that are about beginning? Remember, our sympathetic high priest has grace and help in our time of need. If you're not courageous, that's okay. Jesus wants to make you courageous. But why don't you find someone who is and start to get in their corner? Start to say, hey, will you take me with you? Sign up for Julia's newsletter and become a prayer partner. Follow her courage and let it spur you towards courage. In 2020, as lockdown happened, I formed a group with uh, some fathers and junior high boys and we called it Biceps and Bibles. And we'd run the Hillcrest stairs and work out, and then we'd circle up and have a Bible study. And the boys hated it when I'd make them run the stairs. But I, I, we had this mantra that we would repeat all the time, and we'd say, hey, fellas, you got to do hard things now when it doesn't matter. And as they complain, I'm like, you're right, this doesn't matter. But one day you need to become a man who can do hard things when it does matter. And you won't get there if you don't start to train. So church, let's become a people that start to step into the things of God, that train for righteousness, that train for holiness, that we can become courageous, that we can continue to see this mission go forward. It'll give us courage to show compassion and to be radical in forgiveness. Isn't it amazing that because God says vengeance is mine, we can release our anger and our bitterness? We can leave it to God. We can trust him to bring justice. And so we become a people who are known for our love. We have courage to let go of worldly possessions. The things of this world no longer hold sway over us. We can live simply. We can live generously. We can boldly have courage to invest in kingdom treasure. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You stand with me. Here's the good news, Southlands. This is a little while. There's just a bit of a delay, and Jesus will come back. And we have complete and full confidence of that through the power of his spirit. But it warns us. My righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so we're sober. We take seriously sin and its consequences. We think about our hearts as we approach the communion table. But we also stand confident in faith because we are those who have seen and received grace and we have received the spirit in us. And so church, here's what's true. You aren't those who shrink back. You are not going to be destroyed, but you have the faith of God, and you're gonna preserve your souls and the souls of so many others because of your passionate faith. Father God, I wanna pray your commission over Southlands right now. Would you rush upon us Would you come in power and would you again give us a passion and a courage for your mission? Would you give us a love for your glory that we would desire your exaltation throughout the nations above all else? And would we know the joy of receiving your reward?